Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hello, hello. Leavers and believers, welcome to Leaving Hill Song. My name's Tanya, and we are right in the middle of the judgment. Brian Houston was on trial for concealing a serious indictable offence, and that verdict was delivered in August of 2023. The transcripts were recently made available to me, and we are reading directly from the uh, judgment that the magistrate, Gareth Christofi, delivered on the 17th of August this year. Part one was uh, background, and this part two involves a, a lot more background information of events that took place following the disclosure of Brian Houston's father, Frank, as a serial child sex offender. Now... I'm sorry this has taken us a little bit longer. It, uh, it's surprisingly difficult to coordinate a group of adults to read aloud to a screen and record themselves over a short period of time. You'd be surprised. And I tell you that Jake thought I uh, said page 22 when it was in fact page 12. And I tell you that because I wanted to do this a bit earlier. But uh, yeah, as my mother so kindly reminded me yesterday, it's not about what happens, it's whose fault it is. Which kind of lends us neatly into part two. Big, big thanks to Jake Elliott from The Framework and to PCD for joining me in uh, delivering this to you. I don't think this is available anywhere else, but it is to you now. So settle in, enjoy yourselves, if, uh, if that's a thing. This is legal history. I you know, it's a big one. And uh, these transcripts took a bit of sweat and tears. If you missed part one, go back and listen. 
This is a word for word what happened in that courtroom that day. And it's a very interesting situation. Trying to be impartial and um, welcome to Judgment Day, part two. Further meeting of the National Executive Committee on 22 November 2000. A further special meeting of the National Executive Committee was held on 22 November 2000 at the Hills Christian Life Centre. As with the earlier meeting, this was instigated by the accused. The meeting was chaired by John Lewis, the Vice President, and minutes were taken by Mr Ainge. The minutes reflected at this meeting, the accused said that further allegations of child sexual abuse had been made and come to light against his father, Frank Houston. The allegations related to events said to have taken place in New Zealand over 30 years ago. The accused explained that a complainant said that he had no desire to take action against Frank Houston, but was requesting a personal meeting with him, that is to say, with the accused. That was a complainant relating to the New Zealand allegations. Having conveyed this information, the minutes note that the accused then left the room for the remainder of the meeting. The minutes noted that the National Executive Committee then resolved to have a minister, not the accused, interview Frank Houston to ascertain whether he would admit to the new allegations. So if he were to admit to the allegations, it was resolved that Frank Houston would never be allowed to preach again. It was further agreed that all state presidents of the Assemblies of God be informed as soon as the investigations were complete. It was also agreed that if Frank Houston did not cooperate and refrain from public ministry, the matter would be made publicly known. John Lewis and Keith Ainge were tasked with two things by that meeting. Firstly, to travel to New Zealand to meet with the New Zealand Assemblies of God about the matter. And secondly, to prepare a statement to be used if people heard rumours and made inquiries. Special Elders Meeting of the Sydney and Hills CLC on 29th November 2000. A special meeting of the Elders or Board of Members of the Sydney CLC and the Hills CLC was convened on 22 November 2000. The accused was present as Chairman, as was George Agajanian, Nabi Saleh and a number of others. The minutes of that meeting became an exhibit in the proceedings. The accused gave an update to the meeting on the further developments that had taken place on the issue, including the fresh New Zealand allegations. A resignation letter, dated 24 November 2000, written by Frank Houston, was tabled. It stated simply, quote, I feel it is time for Hazel and I to enter retirement. Close quote. The minutes of the meeting note that a response ought be prepared on behalf of the elders thanking Frank Houston for his immeasurable contribution to the church. The minutes also reflect that it was agreed that a simple announcement concerning Frank's retirement would be sufficient at this stage, to be done in January whilst Frank was on vacation in New Zealand. It was also agreed that Frank and Hazel would be invited to a final elders meeting wherein, quote, we could confirm our financial commitment to them. Quote. The New Zealand Report Keith Ainge and John Lewis travelled to New Zealand on the 28th and the 29th of November in the year 2000. They prepared a report to the National Executive Committee of the Assemblies of God in Australia upon their return from New Zealand and that report is in evidence. 
The report was provided to the NEC soon after it was made. The report stated that there were six specific allegations that had been made by complainants in New Zealand and were considered credible. Those complainants wanted to avoid publicity. The allegations that were said were known by at least 50 pastors in New Zealand. The report also stated that upon their return from New Zealand, Mr Ainge and Mr Lewis had met with Frank Houston and confronted him about the New Zealand allegations. The report stated that Frank Houston did not deny them, but claimed in most cases that he could not recall any specifics. In relation to one complainant, Frank Houston did make some admissions to inappropriate sexual conduct with a child. Frank Houston was then informed that his credentials would never be reissued and that he would never preach again. Statement concerning Frank Houston As they had been tasked to do, Mr Ainge and Mr Lewis prepared a statement for the purposes of responding to any inquiries that individuals had made about these issues. It was dated 8 December 2000 and was approved by the National Executive Committee. The statement is an exhibit in the proceedings and referred to the issue only in oblique terms. It said that Frank Houston had made admissions to, quote, serious moral failures that occurred more than 30 years ago, unquote. Further, the statement requests that Frank Houston no longer be engaged in public ministry. There is no mention in the letter of the fact that the serious moral failure was child sexual abuse. There is no evidence that the accused had any input into the drafting of that document. On the 9th of May 2001, the General Secretary of the New Zealand Assemblies of God wrote to Brian Houston asking him if there would be any kind of public pronouncement concerning Frank Houston. The accused wrote a short note in reply saying, quote, At this point, we are not planning on making any public pronouncement over here, unquote. He thanked the New Zealand Assemblies of God for their, quote, wisdom in handling such a sensitive and difficult issue, unquote. The letter to all ordained and probationary ministers. On 24 December 2001, John Lewis and Keith Ainge drafted and then had sent out a letter to all ordained and probationary ministers in the Assemblies of God in Australia. That letter became an exhibit in the proceedings. The letter explained that Brian Houston had, in 1999, received a, quote, serious accusation, close quote, against his father, Frank Houston, and said to have occurred 30 years previously. The letter stated that the matter was referred to the National Executive Committee and that Frank Houston's credentials had been suspended. The letter went on to state that John Lewis oversaw an investigation into the matter, which resulted in Frank Houston being permanently removed from all forms of ministry. The letter set out a prepared statement for those who made inquiries into the matter, which spoke of a, quote, serious moral failure, close quote, on the part of Frank Houston. This was the same wording as was contained in the 8 December 2000 document. The letter also said, quote, I can assure you that Brian Houston has demonstrated integrity and ensured that truth and justice prevailed in these difficult situations, close quote. There was no mention in this letter of the allegations having been about sexually abusing children, nor of the fact that Frank Houston had made admissions to that kind of abuse. According to the evidence given by Keith Ainge, 
The letter was prepared in an attempt to set the letter straight in the context of growing rumours that had begun to circulate within the Assemblies of God churches relating to Frank Houston. He said that he did not believe that the letter was shown to members of the National Executive Committee before it was sent. The letter was sent to about 700 ordained ministers and about 1,500 probationary ministers across the country, according to Mr. Ainge. There is no evidence that the accused was involved in the drafting of that letter or the decision to send it out. Keith Ainge's recollection was that the accused was not so involved. The Sermon on the 10th of March, 2002 On the 10th of March, 2002, the accused gave a sermon to the Hill CLC, or the Hillsong Church it was then known, in their auditorium which, at that time, seated about 1,300 people and was typically full. In the sermon, the accused shared with the congregation the issues that he had faced over the previous few years in relation to his father. He said that one day he had learnt through George Agajanian that there had been a very serious moral accusation made against Frank Houston. He said that the accusation related to a time over 30 years previously and that the allegation was very, very serious. He said that, agonising though it was, he confronted his father about it and that his father had made certain confessions. He said that he had to take the matter further so that he took the issue to the Assemblies of God National Executive Committee, believing that his father had to be held accountable. He said that he offered to stand down from any investigations because of an obvious conflict of interests. He said that the Assemblies of God investigated the allegations and that, as a result, Frank Houston's credentials were removed permanently. He spoke of his shock and anguish. He also said, referring to his father's victims, that there were people who were hurt by his father's actions, but at that time they did not want to take the matter further. He said that he had spoken about this matter with pastors and elders of the church, as well as the National Executive Committee. He said that all of the pastors of the Assemblies of God had been informed. He said that he felt he now needed to share it with the whole of the congregation. The 31st of March 2002 Sermon the accused brought the matter up again in his Easter Sunday sermon on the 31st of March 2002. In that sermon, the accused told the congregation that in the last couple of years he had found out that his father, while pastor in New Zealand 30 years ago, had conducted himself in a manner that was predatory and involved victims. He went on to talk about how devastating the news had been, referring to it as, quote, like the jets flying into the Twin Towers, unquote. The Hills Conference of 12 July 2002 The accused gave a similar sermon at the Hillsong Conference in July 2002. While the substance of the sermon was the same, the terminology he used was slightly different. In the July 2002 sermon, he used the words, quote, accused of sexual abuse, close quote. He again told the congregation that his father had made a confession. The Hillsong Conference was a major meeting of Christians across denominations that took place each year. It involved a week of ministry, meetings, workshops and music. In 2002, a 
that took place at the Superdome in Homebush, or possibly the state's sports centres, venues capable of holding thousands of people. From about the year 2000, sermons given by the accused at the Hill Seal Sea and the Hillsong Conference itself were recorded and later broadcast Australia-wide on Channel 10. This arrangement continued through 2002 and for many years later. Hillsong recordings were also available for purchase through the church website. The Sydney Morning Herald in January 2003. On the 25th of January 2003, an article about the Hillsong Church, which the Hill CLC was then known by, appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald. The accused had given an interview for the article with the journalist named Greg Bearup. The article reported that Frank Houston had confessed to being a pedophile. The accused spoke openly about the topic during the interview with the journalist. The accused said that he had received a complaint about the matter. The accused said that when he received a complaint about the matter, he confronted his father and that his father had confessed. The article also reports the accused saying that he had reported the matter to the church, elders, the Assemblies of God and then his wider congregation. The accused also spoke about other alleged victims having come forward. In about 2002, Frank Houston and his wife Hazel had moved to the Central Coast. There, they joined an Assemblies of God affiliated church called Coast Life Church in Erina. The senior minister of that church was Ian Zerner. In January 2003, Ian Zerner wrote to Keith Ainge, seeking clarification about what role, if any, that Frank Houston could play in the church, that is to say in the Coast Life Church. Mr Zerner wrote that while Frank Houston had no desire for public ministry, he was not sure if it would be acceptable to allow Frank Houston to pray for someone at the altar or deliver a prophetic word during the service. Keith Ainge took Ian Zerner's letter first to the accused. The accused then suggested that it ought to be considered by the National Executive Committee. Mr Ainge then wrote back to Mr Ian Zerner on the 26th of April 2004, stating that we can only reinforce the decisions of the National Executive Committee that have already been made public. Frank was found to have been involved in serious sexual misconduct and his credential was removed with the understanding that it would not be reissued. Outside participating in public ministry, the letter, in effect, left it up to Mr Zerner to determine Frank's involvement in the congregation. That was, no doubt, a recognition of the fact that the churches affiliated with the Assemblies of God retained a significant degree of autonomy in the way in which they ran their own churches. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Accused's Evidence The accused gave evidence in these proceedings. He said that the first time he ever heard anything about his father's sexual offending was when he was told by George Agajanian at their weekly meeting, which he believed occurred on the 2nd of November 1999. He described his shock at hearing the news of such grave allegations against his father, a man that he looked up to his whole life. The accused said that Mr Agajanian had given him enough details, such as the name of Rose Hardingham, the victim, Brett Sengstock, and the location in Coogee, to make him concerned that there might be some truth to the allegations. Mr Agajanian also mentioned how this information came to light and that it had already been provided to Pastor John McMartin. The accused gave evidence that the following day he rang and confronted John McMartin about why it was that he, John McMartin, had not already brought the information to his attention himself, that is to say, the attention of the accused. As I've said, the accused's evidence on this point, that is, the circumstances in which he came to be aware of the allegations, is consistent with the evidence of Mr Agajanian. For that reason, it is a portion of the accused's evidence which may be readily accepted. The fact that the accused rang to confront John McMartin soon after being told by George Agajanian is consistent with the accused's position that he had resolved in his own mind to do something about it. The accused had a pre-arranged overseas trip booked for 10 days, commencing on the 4th of November 1999. He said that while he was on that trip, he spoke with the New South Wales President of the State Executive Committee, Ian Woods, about the matter. He said he also spoke to the New South Wales Secretary, John Wolfenden. All agreed that due to the gravity of the allegations as well as the status of Frank Houston, that the matter needed to be taken directly to the National Executive Committee upon the accused's return. The accused stated that he arrived back from his trip on the 14th of November 1999 and then he arranged to meet his father at his own office at the Hills CLC. In what was described as an awkward and tense meeting, the accused said he had confronted his father with the allegations of having sexually abused Brett Sengstock. Frank Houston admitted to the allegation. He said that it only occurred once and that it had involved fondling of the child's genitals. The accused said that he then told his father that his credentials would be suspended, something that he had the power to do as president of the National Executive Committee. The accused also told his father that the matter would be taken to the National Executive Committee. The accused said that in the days following, he told a number of other people about the matter. He said he told his own children, his siblings, his mother, Hazel Houston, the wife of Frank Houston. He also said that he raised it with the board members of Sydney CLC and the Hill CLC one by one. In each case, he said that he spoke about the issue in detail, including the nature of the sexual abuse alleged, 
as well as the fact that his father had admitted to it. While there is no direct support in the evidence for the accused's assertions in this respect, it is not challenged and is not inconsistent with the accused's other evidence. The accused said that he also spoke with Kevin Mudford by phone and informed him of the developments. The accused gave evidence that he then met with Barbara Taylor and John McMartin on the 26th of November 1999, a meeting that I've already referred to. He said that at that meeting he informed both Mr McMartin and Ms Taylor about his father's admissions and his intention to take the matter to the National Executive Committee and the other actions that he had taken. The accused said that at this meeting, Barbara Taylor informed him that Brett Sengstock was very angry with his mother at having exposed the matter to Mr Mudford. Barbara Taylor also informed him that Mr Sengstock did not want the matter taken up either by the church or the secular authorities, which the accused understood to mean the police. That was the accused's evidence. The accused denied ever having told Barbara Taylor at that meeting that he had spoken to a lawyer or a barrister or received any legal advice. According to the accused, he never received any legal advice in relation to the matter. The accused said that he next rang Rose Hardingham and spoke to her. She told him, among other things, that her son was angry at her for raising the issue with Mr Mudford and that he was very clear, that is to say, Mr Sengstock was very clear in not wanting to go to the police. She encouraged the accused to ring Mr Sengstock. The accused said that he then rang Mr Sengstock. He informed Mr Sengstock that his father had admitted to the sexual abuse. According to the accused, Mr Sengstock reacted with stunned silence. However, when the accused then went on to say that the accused felt compelled to take the matter to the National Executive Committee, Mr Sengstock's attitude changed. According to the accused, he became angry and panicky, and he did not want to become a part, he said, of some big church investigation. He did not want people talking and gossiping about the matter. He did not want to discuss the matter with anyone and wanted to remain anonymous. These were the feelings expressed by Mr Sangstock, according to the accused, during that phone call. The accused gave evidence that Brett Sangstock also said words to the effect, You are not to go to the police. If anyone goes to the police, it is me, and I do not want to do that. Or words to that effect. Again, this is an aspect of the accused's evidence that is very much in dispute in the proceedings because Mr Sengstock did not agree that he said words to that effect. The accused then said that he told Mr Sengstock that his father's credentials had been suspended and that he would never likely preach again. Mr Sengstock, according to the accused, seemed pleased with that. The accused then said that he reassured Mr Sengstock that when the matter was raised with the National Executive Committee, his name would not be disclosed. The accused gave evidence about the special meeting of the National Executive Committee that occurred on the 12th of December 1999 at Sydney Airport, to which I have referred. As the minutes reflected, he imparted the salient facts that he knew in relation to the matter. Brett Sengstock's wishes to remain anonymous were respected. After informing the meeting of what they needed to know, he stepped aside and allowed the balance of the meeting to be chaired by the Vice President, John Lewis. 
The accused said that he no longer participated in any decision-making on the issue by the National Executive Committee. All of that evidence is consistent with the minutes and consistent with the evidence of Mr Ainge. The accused said that he had no recollection of the discussion about legal advice reflected in the minutes. However, he confirmed or said that he had not received any legal advice about the matter. The accused was asked during his evidence why it was that he did not report the matter to the police. He said that he wanted to respect Mr Sengstock's wishes and that he was aware that Mr Sengstock was an adult capable of making his own report to the police should he wish to do so. After the meeting of the National Executive Committee on December 12, 1999, the accused said that he again rang Brett Sengstock. The minutes of the meeting of 12th of December 1999 had, in fact, tasked the accused to do this in order to inform Mr Sengstock of the process which the National Executive Committee intended to follow. The accused gave evidence that Mr Sengstock was very reluctant to discuss the matter any further. The accused said that he told Mr Sengstock that counselling had been offered by the church. According to the accused, Mr Sengstock replied, I don't want your bloody counselling. The accused said that the phone call was then cut short by Mr Sengstock. The accused said that he then met with his father in Beecroft and that during the discussion Frank Houston told the accused for the first time that he, Frank, had been abused as a child by his own father, that is to say, the accused's grandfather. While he could not be sure, the accused said that he believed that at this meeting, Frank Houston told him that he had paid Mr Sengstock $2,000. The accused understood that the payment had been made by his father as a feeble attempt to right the wrong. The accused gave evidence that in the days that followed, he held a meeting with all of the pastors of both the Sydney CLC and the Hillsong CLC. He said he gave all the pastors a detailed account of everything that had taken place, without mentioning the victim's name. This included, he said, the fact that the allegation had been made of sexual abuse against a child and that his father had admitted to it. The pastoral teams at this time across both churches numbered around 60 people, but many had spouses who were present in these meetings, according to the accused. The accused said he never instructed any of them to keep the matter confidential. That evidence is not challenged. The accused was asked in his evidence whether by this time he ever thought Mr Sengstock was considering going to the police. He said that he did not think that, but that he came to believe that Mr Sengstock was considering going to court for financial compensation. The accused gave evidence that at around this time he became aware that his father wanted to make a further payment to Brett Sengstock. In this context, he was contacted by Nabi Sali and encouraged, he said, to see a lawyer about the matter. He said that he and Mr Sali went together to see a lawyer at a law firm called Mallison's in the city. The accused said that he was motivated to attend this meeting because he wanted to make sure that whatever money was paid to Mr Sengstock from Frank Houston that it would be made clear that the money did not come from the church. Secondly, that when the money was made, that it was not preconditioned upon Brett Sangstock agreeing not to go to the police or anyone else about what had happened to him. The accused said that his memory of what transpired at that important meeting at Mallison's was very limited, albeit he could clearly recall that Sydney Harbour looked stunningly beautiful from the view afforded by the lawyer's office. 
He said that the lawyer produced a document which was in the nature of a draft agreement between Frank Houston and Mr Sangstock for the payment of $10,000. The document made it clear that there were no requests being made of Mr Sangstock to remain silent about the matter. The accused said that while he viewed and read the document, he never received a copy of it. At some stage after this, the accused said he became aware, through Nabi Sali, that a meeting had taken place in Thorn Lee between Frank Houston, Nabi Sali and Mr Sengstock. Following this, in around February or March 2000, the accused said he received another phone call from Brett Sengstock. According to the accused, Mr Sengstock said that he had not received the money he was promised from Frank Houston. Mr Sengstock also said that Frank Houston had told him to phone the accused if there were any problems with receiving the money. Following this conversation, the accused said that he spoke to Nabi Sali and or his mother Hazel Houston about the matter. He could not recall anything in detail about what was said. The accused said that he had no further involvement in the payment of the $10,000 to Brett Sengstock. He said he never made inquiries about if the money was paid and, if so, on what terms, and if the document drafted by Mallisons had been utilised in the exchange. He said he simply assumed that the money had been paid. The accused gave evidence that sometime later that year he was contacted by the then President of the New Zealand Assemblies of God, Wayne Hughes, and that he was told by Mr Hughes that a man from New Zealand was in Sydney and wanted to meet with the accused about his father. The accused said that he met that man, whose name was Gerald, and that Gerald informed the accused that he had been sexually abused at a church youth camp by Frank Houston while he was a boy of 14 years old living in New Zealand. During their discussions, Gerald expressed a wish to speak to the pastors at the Hills CLC about the topic of child sexual abuse. Gerald also made it clear that he did not want to be part of any formal action against Frank Houston. The accused said he then spoke with Wayne Hughes and was informed that there were likely other victims in New Zealand coming forward. The accused said he then, through Keith Ainge, convened another special meeting of the National Executive Committee. He said that this took place on the 22nd of November 2000 and the minutes of that meeting have been referred to above in my judgment. The accused, in his evidence, confirmed that he left the room after imparting the knowledge that he had on the issue in relation to the New Zealand allegations and took no part in the decisions that were made at that meeting. That evidence is consistent with the evidence of Mr Ainge and the minutes themselves. In early 2002, the accused said he decided to make a public announcement of his father to the Sydney CLC and the Hills CLC. He said he first held a staff meeting at each of those churches and informed all of the staff about Frank Houston's sexual abuse of children and the steps that had been taken since those allegations came to light. In total, he said that he had spoken to some 250 staff across both churches. He said that he then spoke to it again at a leadership vision night, which involved about 2,000 people, and that he then gave a sermon about the matter on the 10th of March 2002 to the Sunday congregation of the Hills CLC. That sermon I have referred to. 
The accused gave evidence that he regretted using the words serious moral accusation in that sermon rather than anything more specific. He said that at that time it was still difficult for him to use the word pedophile in conjunction with his father. He also said that given the amount of people within the church that he had told about the matter up until that date, there would be a large pool of people in the congregation that knew exactly what he was talking about. And we are going to leave it there, sports fans, for today. The remainder of the judgment is legal directions, the directions that the their judge put upon himself in order to make a decision. And the final topic is discernment is the heading. So that's the final conclusion woven together that Magistrate Christophe delivered in August of this year. I hope this is accessible to as many people as possible and I hope it's making sense. We are very close to finishing the end, so just bear with us here at Leaving Hillsong. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your interest. It's a huge case with big ramifications, but uh, until the info's out there, we can't talk about it. Just thought I'd stop in and remind you to be kind to yourselves and to be kind to other people. This is uh, heavy stuff and for some people it can um, really trigger off a lot of things. So, you know, look after yourselves. And one of the best ways to do that is to keep leaving Hillsong. We'll talk soon. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.